Welcome to Atomic Radio. I'm Emily Candela. I'm an artist and a design historian, and this show is about what really interests me, which is the ways that science meets art and design. So in this series, we bring you stories from the long relationship between the arts and one particular science. X-ray crystallography. It's a science that reveals the invisible, the tiny structures of atoms in molecules and crystals. But what I share with you on this show isn't only the microscopic world of atoms, but the ways in which the rather humble science of X-ray crystallography has been secretly infiltrating art and design for decades. This week's episode, To Break Into Pieces. Today we'll be talking about how, in order to understand something, sometimes you have to shatter it to bits. X-ray crystallographers do just this. They make the invisible structures of atoms in matter visible. But in order to do so, they have to transform the material that they study into a nearly indecipherable code. That process is X-ray diffraction. Diffraction literally means to break into pieces. And this episode is all about diffraction, about breaking things into pieces, and about trying to learn something from the shattered bits. It's a bit of a diffraction variety show, an episode in pieces. Today, you'll hear the artist and academic Lena Hakim. She'll be revealing the hidden connection between X-ray diffraction and toys. And later in the show, we feature the composer Margaret Shadell, who has invented a way for scientists to understand X-ray data with their ears. Plus, the sound of a virus from Atomic Radio sound designer Sam Conran. You're just going to have to stay with me to find out what I mean by that. Diffraction is at the heart of X-ray crystallography. And about 60 years ago, it was responsible for a breakthrough in the understanding of life itself. Crystallographers use the process of X-ray diffraction to get at the fundamental atomic structure of a crystal. And an important part of the process is actually photography. Photography that doesn't use light as we know it, but which uses X-rays instead. And maybe the most famous photograph ever taken by an X-ray crystallographer. Maybe the most famous photograph ever taken in the history of science goes by the unassuming name of Photograph 51. It was taken by a young scientist named Rosalind Franklin in the early 1950s. One of the things that Rosalind Franklin was really good at was taking X-ray photographs of crystals. And the crystal she was photographing in the 50s in a dark room in King's College in London was of a substance we didn't know as much about then as we do now. DNA. This wasn't by any means an easy process. You'd have to line up a crystal just right and keep it still 
as it was bombarded with a beam of X-rays, sometimes for days. X-ray waves are small enough that they can slip between atoms. And when X-ray waves pass through a crystal's atomic structure, they diffract. Diffraction is what happens when a wave, like an X-ray, encounters something in its way, like an atom, and it passes through a tiny slit. As the wave passes through the slit, it spreads out. Imagine the ring-like ripples you get when you throw a pebble in a lake. When you have a lot of little slits between atoms with lots of waves passing and spreading out through them, those fanned out waves, those rings, interfere with one another on their way to a photographic detector set up on the other side of the crystal. And their ripples either reinforce or cancel each other out. When they reinforce each other, you get a smudgy dot on the detector. When they cancel each other out, you get a blank space. These X-ray traces left on the photographic plate are the diffraction photograph. And this photograph usually doesn't look like much. And it certainly doesn't look like the atomic structure of the crystal it just passed through. It's a very abstract pattern of dots and smudges. Crystallographers have to work backwards from this cryptic pattern to find out what kind of arrangement of atoms created it. It's kind of like echolocation for humans, but at a really small scale and much slower. In the past, before computers could help a lot with this process, it would take a really long time to work backwards from a diffraction photograph to the atomic structure that made it, sometimes even years. Photograph 51 was one of Rosalind Franklin's diffraction photographs of DNA. It looks like a pattern of shadowy smudges vaguely in the shape of an X. And it was this photograph that made it possible to discover the double helix structure of DNA. But when the Nobel Prizes were awarded for the discovery of DNA in 1962, Franklin was not one of the recipients. There's a rule that in order to be awarded a Nobel Prize, you have to be alive. And she had died of cancer in 1958. So Franklin kind of got written out of this history, even though it was her diffraction photograph that was at the root of the discovery of the DNA double helix. When I imagine Rosalind Franklin capturing the cryptic traces of X-rays bouncing off of tiny DNA crystals more than half a century ago, I'm struck by the fact that crystallographers were early comers to the world of encoded information that we're so familiar with today. In the 1960s, the crystallographer J.D. Bernal wrote about how it seemed to him that life was no longer a mystery and was instead becoming, as he said, a cryptogram, a puzzle, a code. We're about to hear from the artist and academic Lena Hakim, who will be speaking about X-ray diffraction from the somewhat unexpected angle of toys. Lena is a researcher focusing on material culture. She has a background in graphic design and book arts, and she recently completed a PhD at the London Consortium on scientific playthings, which looks at the 19th century scientific instruments that became toys. 
Recently, I was having lunch with Lena, and I told her about this diffraction episode of Atomic Radio. And we started talking about this idea of how shattering something to pieces could actually be a way of understanding it. And she surprised me by bringing up toys. Lena has actually discovered a hidden connection between X-ray crystallography and child's play. So I asked her to come on the show and share it with us. The process that X-ray crystallographers use to make sense of the atomic structure of crystals is called diffraction, which literally means to break into pieces. Breaking things into pieces as a form of searching always brings to my mind the poet Charles Baudelaire's description of a child putting his toy to maximal play, applying what he describes as extraordinary agility and strength, attesting it to its limit, leading invariably to the plaything's destruction. He writes, The child twists and turns his toy, scratches it, shakes it, bumps it against the walls, throws it on the ground. From time to time, he makes it restart its mechanical motions, sometimes in the opposite direction. Its marvellous life comes to a stop. The child, like the people besieging the Tuileries, makes a supreme effort. At last he opens it up, he is stronger. But where is the soul? For Baudelaire, the tendency to dismantle, dissect and break toys open is driven, as he puts it, by children's overriding desire to get at and see their toy's soul. He describes it as a first metaphysical tendency, the child's earliest foray into trying to understand the origin and the nature of things. I find it irresistible to draw a parallel between the investigative tendency that leads to breaking toys into pieces and the work of X-ray crystallographers trying to get at the structure behind things. So you can imagine how thrilled I was to find out that there might be a historical link between the processes of crystallography and children's engagement with toys and craft. Friedrich Froebel, the 19th century inventor of the kindergarten, actually trained as a crystallographer. And this background, it seems, has infused his ideas on child education. This is especially true of his introduction of gifts, a set of toys and crafts with which children would interact, learning through hands-on engagement rather than by reading or memorizing texts. One of his early biographers, Denton J. Snyder, captures this link very suggestively. Here is what he writes. The crystallographer secretly works away in his chamber, like a crystal slowly and quietly forming itself. He sees nature shooting into right lines out of chaos. Thus she begins to take on her forms. He is working back to the primitive cosmical energy and beholding the universe organize itself. All of this he will hereafter apply to the unfolding of man, and especially of the child, who also begins with an inner chaos which must organize itself, mainly through education. So what Schneider is saying is that for Froebel, children are a bit like crystallographers, exploring the structures and, and the shapes of nature, but also a bit like crystals themselves, growing and developing. With the kindergarten gifts, children can try out different arrangements of things and learn, through practice, how these develop into different forms. They can invent architectures from building blocks, say, or explore varieties of shape and pattern with triangular tiles. These playthings become, as Baudelaire says, the child's first initiation to art, and they ingrain in the child an understanding of the ways in which structures lie behind things and inform their growth. 
a sense of fundamental systems that are both at the basis of design and at the origin of natural form. When a crystallographer uses diffraction, she is grasping at these invisible structures and systems that underlie the crystal she is studying. She bombards her objects with X-rays that break apart on impact and produce a specific pattern of lines and dots on a photographic film set up behind it. From this diffraction pattern, the trace of the scattered X-ray waves, she then tries to work out the arrangement of atoms that created it. As with the child breaking his toy into pieces, the crystallographer's use of diffraction is essentially driven by a search for the immaterial soul that material things are founded on. Okay, now time for something a little different. What you are hearing right now is data. X-ray diffraction data, the diffraction photograph, made by a sample of something called a quasi-crystal. This is data sonification. And Sam Conran, one of the sound designers working on Atomic Radio, is here to explain what that really is. Sam, first of all, what is sonification? (laughs) To, To put it simply, sonification is the extrapolation of data into sound, the sounding of data. So how did you sonify this X-ray diffraction photograph that kind of just looks like an abstract pattern of dots? So for this, the idea on how to do it came because of the diffraction pattern looking so musical in the sense that it's perfect scale. And the way I sonified it is by using a process called image filtering which consists of taking wideband noise and then filtering out spectrally an image. Wideband noise, which is kind of like the sound of static. Yeah, the sounds of a waterfall or the sound of static. Like white noise. White noise. And everywhere that there was a dot in the diffraction photograph, the noise sort of comes through. It comes through at that particular frequency. And we'll have the images that Sam sonified up on our website, atomicradio.org, so you can see the images that created these sounds. So you said that the photograph looked musical to you. What do you mean by that? Music is the organization of sound events over time. And um, X-ray crystallography, some of the images, if you looked at them musically, if you read them like a score from left to right, they are very musical. If you're looking at the image, if the up and down of the image (laughs) is X and then left to right is Y, Y would be time and X would be frequency. Reading it left to right, there are many different events. Some are uh, intervals, some are chords. That's what made it look musical to me.
What you just heard was SARS, or rather, a sonification of a diffraction photograph of the SARS virus, also made by Sam. Our next story is about sonification. Margaret Shadal is a composer and a professor at Stony Brook University in New York. And her recent project, Hearing Nanostructures, maps data about the internal structures of materials directly into sound. And it's different from the sonifications of photographs we played you earlier in many ways. One of them is that her sonifications are designed specifically to allow scientists to perceive and think about their data in a completely new way that can deepen their understanding of it. When I met up with Margaret in Brooklyn, she told me she's probably the most interdisciplinary person you can meet. And I'll do a sound again. That's great. (laughs) And I think she's right. So my name is Margaret Shadell. I'm a computer musician. Um, I mainly am a composer, but I'm also a cellist and do programming. Her sonification project, Hearing Nanostructures, actually came about through a happy coincidence. Margaret is a composer, and her husband, Kevin Yeager, is a scientist who studies nanostructures. Nanostructures are larger than a molecule, but smaller than something you can see with a microscope. And many of these are very interesting to scientists right now because of their special properties, like being able to convert sunlight into electrical energy. And Margaret noticed a similarity between her work as an electronic composer and the way her husband works with scientific data. I was trying to understand more of what my husband did precisely at his job, and um, I was a math minor, so I said, actually explain it using math, and he started explaining it using math, and he got to the point where he said, and we use an FFT of the data, and I said, oh, I use FFT all the time in my work. FFT stands for Fast Fourier Transform. It's a kind of algorithm that has to do with sound frequency. And he looks at me like I'm crazy, Um, and then I was like, oh, you already have FFT data. We could sonify your stuff really easily. So it is um, using sound to hear the data coming from X-ray scattering rather than visuals. In Kevin's work, he uses something that is related to X-ray diffraction, but is slightly different. It's called X-ray scattering. And in X-ray scattering, X-rays are shot through a material, and the resulting data reveals the crystal structure of the material, just like in X-ray diffraction. Scattering is one of the ways that X-rays interact with atoms. If conditions are right, the scattered X-rays may form a diffraction pattern. So X-rays scatter off the atoms or particles of the sample, and then the intensity is measured by a detector. And you might say, why should we sonify this? So the main reason would be ambient data analysis. So basically researchers can work on other tasks and then hear when a sample is measured. So a lot of their work is visual. So by adding another channel in, we're able to let them multiply their productivity. Um, Other reasons are that our ears have a higher dynamic range and frequency discrimination than our eyes. So you are actually able to detect patterns more easily over time sonically. And then that multimodal input can enhance comprehension. So if you're looking at it and listening to it, maybe you'll be able to extract features that you wouldn't normally be able to recognize. Data in the form of sound could potentially tell scientists more than the kind of data they're more used to working with and understanding with their eyes. So Margaret started working on sonifying this X-ray scattering data. And basically, we sweep through the data to create create a time variable which is not present in the data. The data 
is a two-dimensional picture and instead we are changing it to sweep over that data in time. It's quite a mathematical process. Kevin's X-ray scattering experiments reveal data related to the angles of the atoms in the sample that they're blasting with X-rays. And Margaret translates this data about atoms into frequency. And frequency gives you sound. But in order to sonify the data in a way that would be useful for scientists, she had to figure out things like the kind of length of sound and the particular frequency that would actually be best for perceiving and understanding this data. So the first thing that we tried to do was the maximum frequency, and it's not going to come out of these speakers, but it's 500 hertz. And it um, cuts out a lot of the data because you're compressing it so much, and it's very rumbly. Um, the next thing we did, so the human range of hearing is 20 to 20,000 hertz. So we're like, all right, let's see what it is when you do it to 20,000. It's really, really piercing to listen to this for long periods of time. You wouldn't want this happening in the background. It hurts. Margaret was testing out the sonifications on her husband, Kevin, to see what kinds of sound would communicate information to a scientist's ear, rather than the trained ear of a composer like herself. And she also had to convince him that the whole idea of listening to your data instead of looking at it could work. Because at first, he wasn't convinced. He would, like, blindfold me, and he was like, which one is it? I'm like, that one. He's like, like he really, he couldn't hear the difference. And then once he acknowledged that I could, and I sort of told him what to focus on, he started hearing things. Yeah. And that was an exciting moment. That's really good that you've had that process, though, of having to convince the scientists. <laughs> <laughs> where he tested you and used you as the experimental subject. Right. Yeah. You have to train your ear a bit to really be able to understand what these sounds indicate about a material's internal structure. I confess that I pretty much just let Margaret's sounds wash over me. But Kevin started to be able to understand the sounds, and in the end, he decided to sonify the data in real time in the lab, in what they called the beam line. That is, where they shoot the beam of x-rays at a crystal. So as they're bombarding materials with x-rays to get at their structures, they are hearing the data. And what really convinced him in the end that sonification was worth pursuing wasn't the mellifluous sound of some perfect piece of x-ray data. It was actually the sound of a mistake. Um, this is my favorite one, because <laughs> I'm super into glitch, and it's actually mm -hmm. the thing that convinced Kevin that he wanted to sonify the beamline in real time. So you can imagine you're dealing with stuff that's 1 25,000th the width of a human hair, and a little tiny x-ray that's gone through 12 pieces of equipment to make it exactly the right temperature and the right wavelength and the right this and all that. So misalignment happens yeah. a lot and it, could, it wastes time because if you've missed that it's misaligned and you've just let it run for a half an hour, okay. you... So it's not always so easy to detect, to detect that something has been misaligned? Visually, yeah. Visually it's, you can't always tell. Because if you're working on your computer program, like a lot of times they'll set something up to run and they'll be working on a computer program or working on, I just imagine them in lab coats, like pouring beakers back and forth, but that evidently doesn't happen. It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> there are bubbles. Yeah, they're all like bubbles. And fizzes, so um, most of the time they're like working on their computers. <laughs> Much less sexy image. Um, but this would enable you to be working on your computer and then 
oh, that was a weird sound. I better go check something out. So it's like detectors in the hospital. Some data sonification is kind of musical. Data is mapped onto notes in a scale. But Margaret's isn't done like this. She discovered that you can access patterns you wouldn't otherwise hear if it wasn't done this way, if they didn't care about aesthetics. But even though they're not conventionally musical, I really enjoy the sounds she's created. And now they've sonified data for lots of materials. I just love listening to these. So this is a polymer crystal. It's a structural plastic for packaging and tubing. And basically the more it flexes, um, the stronger it gets. It's very interesting. And so the crystals produce sharp rings in the scattering and these rings become stable tones in the sound. So it's really different sounding. This is um, a metallic alloy. And what I'm hoping the next step we're going to do is um, sonify a whole bunch of different things and see whether metallic alloys always sort of sound up high and brittle because of the way that the scattering works. So to me, this actually does sound metallic. Margaret Chadell's work is proof that sound can be a really powerful tool for scientists. And it's one that's kind of just beginning to be explored. I think that our ears perceive data differently than our eyes. Um, we have, we don't have fluorescent lights in here, but that's my go-to example. It's like, look up, do you see these fluorescent lights? Are they, are they changing at all? They're not. We, they're, they're vibrating at about 200 hertz, but our eyes can't understand that. If we sonified it, we would hear a tone and it would actually be wavering slightly with the current. So we as sighted beings get about 90% of our information through our eyes, but our ears never turn off. Our brains are doing an intense amount of computation on sound and we really do have an intimate understanding of it. And I think scientists are realizing that as we get into big data, that they need as many avenues into understanding this stuff as possible. That's the show this week. Thanks to artist and academic Lena Hakim and the composer and professor Margaret Shadell for sharing their work in this episode. You also heard Sam Conran, who emerged from behind the scenes of Atomic Radio today to talk about his X-ray diffraction sonifications. In next week's episode, we discuss the role and reputation of women in X-ray crystallography, zooming in on one crystallographer who worked across science and design in the 1950s. Atomic Radio is part of the Resonance FM residency at the Science Museum and is supported by the Science Museum Art Program. We're also part of the International Year of Crystallography. This series is part of my PhD across the Royal College of Art and the Science Museum, supported by an Arts and Humanities Research Council Collaborative Doctoral Award. Thanks, as always, to my fabulous PhD supervisors, Sarah Teasley and Peter Morris. And special thanks to Hannah Redler. You can hear us again next week on Resonance FM, online at soundcloud.com slash atomic radio. And if you're around, you can hear it through a horn in the Science Museum made by the sound artist Alex Kolkowski. Atomic Radio is made by me, Emily Candela. It's co-produced by Chris Dixon. Sound design and composition by Sam Conran and Emmett Glynn.
Find us on Twitter at radio underscore atomic. And visit us at atomicradio.org with your comments and feedback. And we'll speak to you again next week.